Before we start this week's Parsha podcast, this New Year's Parsha podcast, of course, we have to talk about the war happening right now in Israel. Of course, we all know about the horrific, grisly, brutal, really unimaginable attacks that happened uh, on Shabbos and, and really are continuing to happen. Of course, the scale is is unimaginable. The amount of people that were killed and are wounded and are, are captured, hostages in Gaza. The numbers keep going up. It's just been such an awful, awful week for our people. The suffering is just unimaginable. Just the absolute horrific uh, devastation that happened and that is continuing to happen. It's just really unimaginable. I heard a lot of uh, comparisons people were making to the Nazis. This is the worst day since the Holocaust. We've heard that this is like Israel's 9-11. The truth is that this is a level of barbarism. What our people, what our brothers and sisters went through and are going through, it's level of barbarism that really even the Nazis did not display. To go to go door to door, shooting people in their homes, uh, beheading babies. These are atrocities that we just cannot fathom. And of course, our young boys, our young men are on the, on the, the doors of, of Gaza. And we don't know how this is going to play out, how it's going to escalate. Of course, there were shells from, from Lebanon and drones and, and Hezbollah and Syria, even, even here, even stateside, you know, in, in Houston, the cops now are protecting all the Jewish communities. There are a lot of people, even in America and throughout the Western world, who are very hostile and are walking among us. And we don't know how much larger this war will get. We know that Hezbollah has 150,000 rockets pointed at Israel. And of course, there's the factor of, of Iran. It, of course, is waging the war via proxies, but will they take an active role? We don't know. So we're, we're shocked and we're enraged and we're, we're pained and we're scarred and we're traumatized and we're scared with everything that happened. And we're very uncertain and very worried about the future. And of course, we want revenge. And that is legitimate. I got an, uh, a text message from my friend. And he says, is it okay to, to want revenge? And I told him, it's not only is it, is it okay, not only is it legitimate, it's appropriate. It's the proper response. The Torah tells us that God will avenge us. In the end of the Song of Hazin, we read it a few weeks ago. If this is what God does, if God avenges the terrible atrocities, the cruel atrocities done to us, then obviously it's just and appropriate for us to seek revenge as well. You know, we say in the Avinu Malkenu prayers, Nikom Nikmas we ask God, avenge, avenge the vengeance of the blood of your servants that was that was spilled. If someone does not have the impulse for revenge, I hate to say it, but they are not in sync, they are not aligned with the will of Hashem, of the Almighty. So not only is it okay and justified, it's right. And not feeling an urge for revenge is wrong. And it, it may indicate that a person doesn't really identify with the people that were that were hurt, that were killed, that were injured, and their families, and think about what they're going through. So yes, revenge is appropriate, and we will celebrate, please God, with the downfall of evil. We don't show mercy to barbarians. It's not appropriate. The Talmud, of course, famously tells us, if you are merciful on the cruel, eventually you will be cruel to the merciful. We know that Hitler was very much a, a vegan and animal rights, and he was very sad if any animals uh, uh, were were hurt. And of course, the, the Nazis were incredibly cruel. So we don't want to have any misplaced mercy. And we have to remember that we, we are at war. When I say we, I mean all of us. When these barbaric murderers, these terrorists, when they slayed our brothers and sisters, 
They didn't speak about Israelis or, or Zionists. They said, let us kill the Jews. And make no mistake, if any one of us were there, they would have slaughtered us as well. And they would have taken us captive, hostages, to Gaza as well. Thank God we survived. But we are at war. I got a lot of inquiries. People reached out, very kind of them, you know, about my, my family. As you know, I have a bunch of siblings that live in Israel. And thank God they, they are well. But really, the whole nation is a family. We're one people. We have to love our fellow as ourselves because our fellow is ourselves, we're taught. And even, I have to say, even with my literal family, they're all living in a war zone. The whole country of Israel is the size of New Jersey. It's tiny. And there are rockets landing in all Israeli cities nonstop. I spoke earlier today with my, with my sister. She's telling me that they're sleeping in, in bomb shelters and she can't go out because the kids are in the bomb shelters and they get very terrified when the sirens go off. These are small children. The sirens go off and you know, their mother has to be right there in the bunker with them. So thank God the family is well, but the extended family, the, the Jewish nation, we're one family and we are grieving and we are in, in pain and we're suffering. And even, you know, us here in, in Houston, it's close to home. Of course, the outbreak of the massacres, the incursions, the infiltrations, it happened uh, Israel time on, on, on Shabbos morning, on Saturday morning. So for us, this is Friday night. But of course, it's Shabbos, so none of us are on our phones. So we didn't find out really about what happened until the security guard, our shul has a security guard, and he came and informed us about what happened. You know, my wife's family, part of my wife's family was in a different community, and they knew nothing about what had happened until Sunday night. But in our community, there's a young gentleman, and he's an active duty officer in Israel on the military base that is right outside of, of Gaza, the military base that was briefly occupied by the terrorists from Hamas. Now, this individual, he was in Houston because he got a leave of, of absence to go back home for the festival. And he was in contact, even though it was Shabbos. He, he got on his phone to find out if he has to go back to Israel right now because you know, he's an officer and he has his, his guys there. And he told us that this is, again, Shabbos afternoon. So who knows what the numbers are now. Seven of his friends were killed on, on this military base. We're at war. And we all have to figure out what we can do to help our brothers and sisters who are suffering. And I think that we really have to, all of us, we all have to enlist. We're all being drafted into this conflict. You recall the first war that our nation ever waged right after the Exodus. The nation leaves Egypt and they're attacked. They're attacked by Amalek. This is the first war that our people as a nation ever fought. And what happened in that conflict? Moshe tells Joshua, Yehoshua, go select warriors and we're going to wage war. And Joshua goes down in the valley and wages war. And what does Moshe do? Moshe ascends the mountain with Aaron on one side, Hur on the other side. And when he lifts his arms, the verse tells us the nation is more victorious. And when his arms weaken, then the nation's resolve and strength and success in the battlefield weakens as well. And what the commentaries all tell us is that the war had two fronts. This was a two-front war. There was the physical skirmish battlefield with Amalek, with weapons and with you know, the personnel on the field, soldiers on either side. But there was a second front, and that was Moshe battling in the heavens, so to speak. He was waging the spiritual war. And if this is the first war that our nation waged, then this shows us how Jews wage war. 
There's the Joshua dimension, and that's the physical war, the soldiers in the trenches, in the battlefield, on the front lines. And then there's Moshe, so to speak, on the mountaintop, praying. And of course, Moshe and Joshua, this, this is the first leader and the second leader of the Jewish people, the absolute leaders of the nation. We must all enlist. And those who are able to, to join, so to speak, the Joshua dimension of this war, they're fighting the battle on behalf of the whole nation. And if someone cannot join, so to speak, the, the ground troops, then they must enlist in the other front, on the front of Moshe, so to speak, fighting the spiritual war. And when I say we all must enlist, I think it, it demands of us to have a degree of dedication, of self-sacrifice. Maybe we're not facing bombs and, and terrorists and, you know, we think about what's going to be in the hornet's nest that is Gaza. How, how dangerous it is, the street to tree, street fighting. We don't know what's going to happen yet. Of course, we're just talking, uh, you know, we're prognosticating for the future. But that is, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a hornet's nest. It's a, it's, it's going to be, we imagine, of course, miracles can happen. And God runs the world. We know that. But that is hell on earth. And our young boys, young men and women are going there. And they're, they're, they're dedicating their lives. Their lives are at risk. And we cannot be in our ivory tower and say, you know what? We're fine. No, we also have to enlist. And if we can't enlist with Joshua, we have to enlist with Moshe. And we have to have a degree of dedication, warlike mentality, fighting the spiritual battle as well. And of course, part of this is to do whatever you can to support Israel, to support the troops, support the soldiers, support the families. And I I will share with you a, a list here of some initiatives that are legitimate uh, there's an organization that I've ver- verified and, and vetted personally called Matan Beseter, which means gifts, donations done in secret. This is one of the most amazing organizations in Israel where they give food and, and money and support of poor people, but now they're doing a big drive to support the families of those who were, who were killed and injured. And this is an organization that I can vouch for personally. Uh, there are other organizations, other amazing causes. Uh, there's a lot of uh, initiatives, fundraising for equipment, and people that I trust verified them. And I'm going to have all the links for this in the description of the podcast. There are other amazing initiatives, Adopt a Soldier, people making food. I'm sure you've seen the videos on social media, people making food or, or tzitzis and tefillin to send to the soldiers on the front. But we all must enlist. We have to get involved in some way. It cannot be that our brothers and sisters are in war and we live our merry lives. Our brothers, our sisters are suffering. We cannot remain on the sidelines. In the book of Exodus, God appeared to Moshe in a burning bush. You recall that Exodus chapter 3. And Rashi asks the question, why a burning bush? Why not, I don't know, a more substantial tree, an oak tree, a cedar, a sequoia even? Why is God, so to speak, in a burning bush? And Rashi explains, because God is not going to be in a more comfortable, so to speak, place when the nation's suffering. The nation is suffering in Egypt and God is suffering, so to speak, alongside of us. And of course, if the Torah tells us that, it's, it's for our, for our understanding of how we must behave when others are suffering. We cannot luxuriate and live our lives as if nothing happened when our own brothers and sisters are in war. Another example, there are many examples of this, but other example uh, from the book of Genesis, when Joseph was reunited with his brothers before he revealed himself, the verse in the end of chapter 43 of Genesis tells us that they drank wine together. And Rashi tells us from the verse 
that you can deduce that it was only then that Joseph drank wine and only then that the brothers drank wine. How could it be? Jacob is mourning. Jacob is suffering. Jacob is inconsolable about the loss of Joseph. And Joseph is going to revel. He's going to drink. He's going to intoxicate himself. And the brothers made the same calculation. It can't be that our father is suffering and we're going to drink. So for 22 years, everyone in this family was abstinent from wine. That teaches us that when when our brothers are suffering, we have to experience some pain alongside them. I have to tell you, I was <laughs> I was taking my son Yitzi. He should live me well. I was taking him yesterday to little league practice. So he's a second grader, and two of his classmates were in the car. I was doing the carpool, and one of them said something. He said. My mother said that unless the Astros or the Diamondbacks or the Guardians made the World Series, we're not going to watch the World Series. Why? Because there's a war in Israel. I thought that was a a beautiful thing. The the family, he's from Cleveland and she's from Phoenix and they live in Houston. Said if any one of our teams is in the World Series, we'll watch it. But otherwise, how how can we watch a baseball game? When there's so much suffering, when there's a war happening in Israel, some may, some may argue, well, that's suffering, you know, to watch a whole game, a whole baseball game, even with the new rules is suffering. But I thought that was a very, uh, very nice lesson for the child to say that when there's a war, we have to also acknowledge that. You know, during World War One, when Jews were suffering across all of Europe, the Chavetz Chaim did not sleep in a bed for the whole war. How can I, even if I'm comfortable, how can I sleep in a bed? when my brothers and sisters are suffering. I'm not asking anyone here to, you know, to cause pain to themselves, but it's an idea that we, we cannot ignore the pain and the suffering of our fellow brothers and sisters, of, of, of our kinsmen. We have to bear the burden of our fellows as well. We try to think about it, at least, you know, feel the pain, feel the terror. Think about what it was like when you have 50 Hamas people descend upon your, your little settlement and you, you have no defenses. And people cowering in their homes and try to hide their children. Just think about the, the suffering, the unimaginable suffering of, of entire families slain, of, of going door to door, burning homes to suss out the inhabitants. Think about the terror of, of the hostages, you know, small children being taken to, to Gaza. It's important for us, again, without getting depressed. If we get depressed, then we've pushed ourselves too hard. But we are trained in the Torah that part of our experience that we're supposed to do when there is a situation like the one we're in today, that we're in collectively as a nation, is that we cannot remove ourselves from the suffering of the masses. If they're suffering, we have to find a way, an area where we too are going to empathize and, and feel the pain of our brothers and sisters and what they're going through. Now, on a practical level, so we have the Joshua dimension, go to war, go support in whatever way you can. What does it mean to fight the war on the dimension of Moshe? In the end of chapter 48 of Genesis, Jacob talks about the war that he engaged upon with his sword and with his bow, his bow and arrow. And Rashi there explains that what does it mean Jacob waged war with a sword and a bow and arrow? Rashi explains that this refers to Torah, his study, and Tefillah, his prayer. These are weapons of war, a sword and a bow and arrow, says Jacob. Our wars, they happen in two dimensions. On the Moshe dimension, what does it mean? What was Moshe doing atop the mountain? with Aaron on one side, Hur on the other side. He was praying. He was studying. He was trying to effectuate success for the fighters with prayer and with Torah. Of course, during the high holidays, we always say that prayer removes the evil decree. In our community last night, we had over 600 people get together to recite 
the Psalms, the Tehillim. And as Jews are always trained to do over the course of the centuries and millennia, when we're in trouble, we channel our prayers through the hallowed words of Psalms, of Tehillim, of King David. So at a minimum, we could all say some Psalms on, on behalf of those suffering in Israel. Specifically, chapters 20, 83, 121, 130, and 142. Now part of this is to remember who's in charge. A lot of people asking questions. How can such a thing happen? How can the intelligence have such a terrible failure? Where's the army? Where's the security? Where's the Mossad and the Shabak and you know the, the vaunted intelligence services and the impenetrable fence? Where's this overwhelming military and security might that gave us so much comfort? In a way, very similar to what happened during the Yom Kippur War, some of that was shattered. The Talmud tells us that one of the lessons of Messiah, and in fact, one of the indicators of Messiah, is when we realize that we have no one to rely upon except God. And of course, our nation was dealt a terrible blow and a very, very painful reminder that those things that we relied upon, those forces and those intelligence services and the security apparatus, they didn't defend and protect the many, many, many hundreds, thousands of victims. The verse tells us in Psalms, if God does not protect a city, then the watchman works in vain. Part of this idea of prayer, it's an act of faith. It's a messianic act of faith. It's a declaration that we realize that, yes, we have to have our soldiers, we have to support our soldiers, and we have to have the police and the security infrastructure and all that. But ultimately, we, we remember and we exhibit and we manifest with our behavior and our, and our prayer that it's God who we need to rely upon. That's prayer, one half of what we need to do of, of, of Jacob's arsenal of war. And then there's Torah. The Talmud tells us that Torah's magno matzla, it protects and it saves. The world, we read in our Parsha, the world hinges on Torah. Yom hashishi, day, the number day six. And the Talmud tells us that all of creation hinges on the sixth day, namely the day of Sinai, the sixth of Sivan, because all of creation hinges on Torah. Torah provides protection. I know that in many of the yeshivos, maybe even most of them, this was now between the semesters, always during Pesach and Sukkot, that is a time when the students are off. But how can you be off? How can you be away from your post, so to speak, when there's a war? So they canceled, they canceled the break. And in some yeshivos, they instituted 24 hours of study. Round-the-clock shifts. There's always going to be at least a few students in the yeshiva who are studying at all times. We may not have the great fortune of being in a yeshiva, but we should also reinforce our own studying because this provides protection. And finally, there's the subject of national unity. Of course, wars tend to bring even people from different sides of the aisle, different political, religious, social persuasions, it brings them together. But we know, our sages tell us, that unity goes a long way to help battles be won. Ahav, the terrible king, he won wars. Even though he was immersed in idolatry. Why? Because of unity. And as we know, and everyone knows this, there was a time of unprecedented division in Israel in the preceding months. And it's hard to say that that brought us anything constructive. Now, 
is the time to unite. You may have Jews that you have serious disagreements with, and that's okay. It's okay. But let's try not to say a bad word about another Jew. Let's try to only say positive things about others and do whatever we can to help other Jews in need to unite as one nation. That hopefully will go a long way to help bring this conflict, this war, to a positive end. Of course, well, as positive as it could possibly be given the circumstance. Of course, we're going to dedicate our studies in loving memory of all those who were murdered by these barbarous beasts and in the merit of the speedy recovery of the injured and the merit of, uh, of the salvation of the hostages and, of course, the merit of the protection of our brothers and sisters on the front lines. They should be safe. They should be successful. They should come home victorious and healthy in mind and in spirit. We're on to year eight of the Parsha podcast with the help of the Almighty. As we did last year, the plan is, please God, on Sunday to release the rebroadcast from previous years. On Tuesday to release the episode, to re-release the episode from two years ago. So from year six, the year 5782. This is 5784. So two years ago, 5782. That's the cycle that we did with the exquisite insight to release that on Tuesday. And please got a new episode on Thursday. So early Thursday morning with the theme of dad. Dad, deep and deeper. And my hope is to do, to do um, more segments, you know, quicker, snappier hits, not a long drawn out segment. Uh, obviously, you know, it's the beginning of a, of a new cycle. We're trying to find the, the best format and maybe we'll tinker with it a bit. But I want to say that when we're studying Torah, it's important for us to be joyous. We're going to study Torah. We're going to study the dad. We're going to remember that the Torah binds us to our predecessors like nothing else before. We have the same Torah that our parents and grandparents and great-grandparents going back dozens and scores of generations studied it. And there's so much depth to it, so much profundity to it. And, you know, we'll try to go a little bit deeper than we've done in previous years. You know, just just a little bit, just, you know, deep and maybe a little bit deeper, just a, a whiff of a fragrance, a hint of a touch of depth. But we're going to be joyous in our studies. Of course, these are hard times, sad times. We may feel a tendency to be, to be depressed and to be scared. And it's hard to concentrate. But Torah is supposed to be studied with great joy. And we're going to make an effort to be as joyous as possible when we are, when we're studying. Of course, it's serious. And this is part of our contribution to this war. The, the spiritual dimension of this war, we're going to be serious, but full of joy, full of happiness, that we have this incredible opportunity to study the Almighty's Torah each week together from the Torch Center in Houston, Texas. It's Dad. Dad, deep and deeper. Today we're going to do, please God, three segments on the Parsha Parshas Bereshis. We'll call it Deep and Deep and Deeper into the Parsha to see behind the scenes beneath the veneer, behind the facade, to explore the secrets of the parsha to the best of our abilities. So let's begin. Chapter 1, verse 1, the first verse, the first word, Bereshus, that we're told is all of creation. That is a microcosm of the world. If we just had Bereshus, we would have everything. Our sages tell us, Everything is hidden in that one word. All of Torah is hidden in that one word. All of history is hidden in that one word. All the secrets are found there. Of course, we don't know how to decrypt it. But I will tell you, this week, I perused a book called Ma'aseh Bereshis. And what this book does it takes the six letters of the word Bereshis, Bez, Resh, Aleph, Shin, Yud, Saf, and it shows how in that one word, just six letters, you can find all 613 mitzvahs. And it goes through mitzvah by mitzvah. There's a chapter in each mitzvah. And it shows, using just those 
such letters, how they're all hinting to all these many and varied mitzvos. So we have creation with one word. And then we have creation in, you know, a chapter, really, chapter plus three verses. Seven days to flesh out, so to speak. Beratius is in one word. And that gets fleshed out over the course of seven days. And the Ramban tells us, this is the Ramban beginning of chapter two, that this week of creation, these seven days, they are a microcosm of all of human history. The Talmud tells us that this world is a 6,000-year enterprise. After 6,000 years, the world transitions to a Shabbos state, the seventh millennium. And everything that happened in these six days, six plus one, so seven days, that is a microcosm of all that will happen over the course of seven millennia. We have a creation. And then we have a creation. And then we have another creation. We have Horatius, creation in one word. And then we have a creation, so to speak, over the course of seven days. And then we have the actualization of that on a much larger scale over the course of 7,000 years. The Ramban notes at the very end of the description of Genesis, God blesses the seventh day and sanctifies it because on that day, God ceased from his work that he created, Asher Barah Elohim, that God created la'asos, to do. There's an extra word here. The verse should have said that God created. Why does it say that God created to do? Says the Ramban. Beratius is all of creation. That one word is all of creation. But really, the first week is all of creation as well. And these six days, they are a template for the six millennia of this world and the one millennia of the next world. And then he goes through the days of creation and shows how they mirror and correspond and foreshadow to the successive millennia of history. The first two days of Genesis, the world is completely covered in water. Nothing was complete. And the reason why is because over the course of the first two millennia, so if every day corresponds to a thousand years, as we know, the verse tells us the day of God is a thousand years. It's actually a verse in Psalms. So two days corresponds to two millennia. And for two millennia, Abraham wasn't around. And the world was devastated. The world was, so to speak, covered in water. There was no revelation of land. There was no one who called out in the name of the Almighty. There was desolation. There was emptiness for 2,000 years. And yes, on day one, there was light because Adam was the light of the world. He knew God. And really, there was no idolatry until after he died. The whole world saw the direct handiwork of God, namely Adam. And therefore, so long as Adam was alive, there was no idolatry. That Sunday, and then Monday, so year 1000 to year 2000, there's the separation. Separation of the upper waters from the lower waters. Noah and his sons were separated from the wicked people who were struck by waters. And then we have the generation of dispersal. Again, further separation. And then Tuesday. Tuesday is the one day that the verse says about it twice. It was good. Tuesday is a very good day. It's doubly good on that day. Dry land appeared, and fruits were produced and sprouted. And in the third millennium, Abraham arrived, and he sprouted, and he proliferated. He began to publicize the name of Hashem in the world. And he taught his children and future generations. There's tremendous progress in the mission of existence. And he got the Torah. And he built the temple. And the mitzvahs were fulfilled. The great fruits appeared. And then there's Wednesday. 
Wednesday is the sun, the moon, the stars, and the constellations. The large constellation, which is the sun. The small constellation, the small celestial being. This refers to the first and second temple. The first temple was as bright as the sun. The second, well, that was more like the moon. The temple, of course, is light. It's the presence of God amongst us. And, of course, on top of the altar, there was a fire. And that's symbolic of of the light of the sun. And the first temple, it was, the fire was as intense as a lion. In the second temple, it was more diminished. It was more like that of a dog. First temple, like the sun. Second temple, like the moon. And the moon, sometimes we see all of it. Sometimes we see a little bit of it. Sometimes we see none of it. The moon is symbolic of a pattern of of brightness, of vibrancy on one on one end, and then you have the diminishing, you have the ebbing, you have the waning of the moon. On Wednesday, in the fourth millennium, you have exile. And towards the evening, the sun sets, these lights disappear, the temples are destroyed. On Thursday, the Roman tells us, you have the birds and the fish. This corresponds to exile. What does our nation do when we are dominated by foreign powers? We're like animals. Animals are controlled by their human masters. The commentaries tell us that the Rabban here is, is hinting at the proliferation of Christianity that happened in the fifth millennium. And then you have Friday. You have the creation in the morning of animals, and then man is created. And this, he tells us, is corresponding initially to animals who do not submit themselves to the Almighty, and then to the fierce nation that's a bit bit closer to the truth. That's a hint at the Muslims. And then comes man, and that is symbolic of Messiah. Messiah, created in the image of God, appears on day six, on Friday, the sixth millennium. And then day seven, Shabbos, that refers to a completely different world. That's the world to come. That is the day of rest. This is a fascinating Ramban. Genesis, just the first week of Genesis, chapter one of Genesis, with three verses of chapter two. That is a template for all of history. Six days equals six millennium. And what happened during that first week, that's an indicator of what will happen in the corresponding millennia. And this gets even more granular. What happened on day six of creation? We are told, not in a minute-by-minute account, but we are told an hour-by-hour timeline of what happened to Adam. It tells us that on the first hour of the day, Adam was not created, but the dust that he will be created from was amassed from around the world. It was gathered together. And then in the second hour, it was made into a being. It was lumped together into a mass. And then the third hour, the Talmud tells us, the limbs were stretched out. And the fourth hour, a soul was infused in it. On the fifth hour, it stood. On the sixth hour, it assigned names to all the animals. On the seventh hour, it was paired with Eve. On the eighth hour, they went to bed as two and emerged as four. Cain and Abel are born on Friday. On the ninth hour, it was told not, or he was told not to eat from the tree of knowledge, good and evil. On the tenth hour, he sinned. On the eleventh hour, he was judged. On the twelfth hour, he was condemned. If 24 hours are one day, and one day is a thousand years, 
That tells us that every hour in Genesis corresponds to 41 years. Now, I will tell you, of course, these are all secrets. This is way deeper than I even intended to go in the dad cycle of the Parsha podcast. If what the Ramban is telling us is true, and of course we accept it, all of Genesis is a microcosm for all of history. And the arrival of Messiah on day six, that is symbolic of the arrival of Messiah in our lifetime, or in, in this millennium at least. And the Goan of Vilna, he writes, if you want to know exactly when the deadline for Messiah to, to arrive is, all you have to do is study the exact events, the precise events of day six of Genesis. Because once you realize that, once you study that, you will know precisely when the deadline for Messiah to arrive is. And he doesn't connect the dots for us. In fact, he he warns us very sternly that if you do know what he's talking about, you should not reveal it. I even read a story that there was someone who cited this comment in the Gonavilna. And he says, yes, the Gonavilna says not to reveal it, but it's time to reveal it. And as he said that, he got a heart attack and he died. The Gonavilna says, there's a secret here. In the episode of Genesis, on day six, if you find out exactly what happened minute by minute, hour by hour, you will find a point where Messiah arrives. And then you can extrapolate that to the thousand years that correspond to the day six, and you'll know exactly when the end point of Messiah is. But of course, even if I knew, I wouldn't tell you, because I will not violate the warning of the Gona Vilna. But the larger idea is sound. As we get closer to year 6,000, we are getting closer to the final endpoint of Messiah. And of course, we know on our Fridays, there's a preparation for Shabbos that happens on Friday. And as you get closer to Shabbos, the preparation intensifies. Messianic development picks up steam as we approach the end of the millennium Friday. Now, I want to take this a bit deeper. We have lots of microcosms here. Bereshis is a microcosm of all of creation. This first week of creation is a microcosm of all of our history. But what's it all about? What is Genesis? What is creation all about? What is the purpose of creation? What is the meaning of life? So listen to this. The Torah starts off, Bereshis. And the next three words are, Bara Elohim S. In the beginning of God's creation of heaven and earth. What does Bara means to create? Elohim means God. S means, it's a word you can't translate into, into English. Because there is no parallel of that. But that's like a connecting word. God created the heavens and earth. Those three words, so you have Bereshis, but after Bereshis, the three words are bara Elohim, S. The final letter of those three words are bara is, is Bez, Resh, Aleph. Elohim ends with the letter Mem. S ends with the letter of uh, Asaf, or Ataf. If you spell out those three letters into a word, it's Emet, or Emes, which means truth. The very beginning of Genesis, we are given the signet of God. How does God, so to speak, sign his name? What's his signet? It's truth, the Talmud tells us. At the very beginning, we have, again, the, the after the word Barashas, the very first three words, they all end with, with an Aleph, Mem, and Asaf, spelling out the word Emet. Well, how does the first week end? We read the verse earlier. God ceased to do any work. 
on this day, on, on Shabbos, God ceased from all of his work, Asher bara Elohim la'asos. So we have three words at the beginning, bara Elohim es, and three words at the end, bara Elohim la'asos. The final three letters of those three words, Aleph, Mem, Saf, Aleph, Mem, Saf, Genesis starts off with the Sidnet of God. And it ends with the Sidnet of God. What is creation all about? It starts off with truth. It ends. The end point is truth. All of creation is about the revelation of God's truth, his signet in the world. And if you think about it, there's a little bit of a wrinkle here. The first three words, the last three words spell out the word truth. Creation, Genesis, is bookended by truth. At the beginning, at the end, in the middle, not so much. Our mission is to restore the truth, the signet of God in this world, when it's all said and done, in a way that matches, that mirrors the way it was at the very beginning. We, or the, 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 the reason why existence was done, is to see if the people who are the, the levers of existence, can you contribute towards the restoration of the signet of God the way it was with Boratius at the very beginning? This is a very powerful idea. It starts off with truth. It ends with truth. That's the end point. And that's the purpose. Can we, us, fragile, frail, fallible humans, can we contribute towards the revelation of God's truth in the world? There's another point here. We know that there are many names of God in the Torah. In fact, the Ramban, in his introduction to his commentary, on the Torah. We actually went through this a few years ago. He tells us that there is a heavenly dimension to Torah when the Torah is existing as black fire atop of white fire. And in that dimension, Torah is just the names of God. But on our dimension of Torah, there are 10 dedicated names of God in the Torah. And the heretics say, well, there are two Genesis narratives, one with the name Elohim and one with the ineffable four-letter name of God, the Tetragrammaton. And the redactors work really hard overtime, if even, to stitch it all together. We have to dispense with the infantile nonsense of this quote-unquote documentary hypothesis. Oh, um, there are you know, four different books plus the redactor maybe even more, who knows, and it's all haphazardly stitched together. It's really silly, and we shouldn't even address it in such a forum, so shallow and infantile. And there's, of course, an inherent contradiction. On one hand, these heretics are arguing, well, it's so obvious there are different sources, yet it's stitched together so seamlessly. But regardless, here's another cool thing. How do we invoke God's signet in the world? What can we do to bring about this and met this truth of God in the world? So we have, at the end of the Genesis narrative, we have Shabbos. And what do we read by our Kiddush? What do we say by our Kiddush? We quote this verse, Yom HaShishi. We end off day six by Yechulu HaShemayim. That's how we start. And the commentaries note, those four words, Yom, Hashishi, Vayichul HaShamayim, the first letter of those four successive words, spell out the Yud and the He and the Vav and the He, the full name of God. When someone keeps Shabbos, when someone observes Shabbos, they are invoking the name of God. They are testifying to the truth, to the signet of God in the world. And they are contributing towards the bringing out of the truth the fulfillment of the mission, of the purpose of creation. The name of God, the name that we, that the heretics 
are saying, well, it doesn't even exist in chapter one. It's right there, right, right in front of you. And it's the full name of God. The Yod, the He, the Vav, and the He. There is the incomplete name of God, where it's just the Yod and the He. And that is featured in the Torah as well. Not by us, but by Amalek. Chapter 17 of the book of Exodus, in that aforementioned first war that our nation waged. The verse says that when Amalek is around, then God is only on the chair of the throne of Yud and Ahay. The Vav and Ahay, the last part of the Tetragrammaton, it's a fun word to say, the Tetragrammaton, the four-letter ineffable name of God, the name Havaya as it is pronounced, or as it is known, that is what Amalek wants to do to eliminate the revelation of God in the world. We have a modern-day Amalek attacking our people. We're in the middle of a war. And at the very beginning, God tells us the purpose of existence of creation is truth. And the way you do it, how do you invoke the name of God in the world? Yom Hashishi Just as God rested on day seven, we do the same. We exhibit the creation. We exhibit the existence of God. We exhibit the signet of God when we rest on day seven. There's a beautiful initiative that I saw where people are trying to strengthen and reinforce their observance of Shabbos this week. It's a beautiful initiative. We all should observe Shabbos this week to show God we want to reveal your name in the world. We want to battle Amalek. We want to defeat Amalek. We want to defeat these terrible Nazis that we are waging war against. We want to install God, the full name, on his throne. There's never been a better time for that. Is that deep? I don't know. Does this qualify as deep? I'm not sure. We have to figure out if this is maybe too deep. Maybe it's too shallow. I don't know. I have to never underestimate the audience. But we start with the Torah and there's deep stuff everywhere. But let's continue. Let's go a bit deeper. Chapter 2. God constructs Adam. Offer me Adama, dust from the earth. Where else can you find dust? Are you going to find it in the skies? Are you going to find it in the clouds? Of course, dust is on the earth. Why does the verse need to tell us that God used dust from the earth? Okay, that's an interesting question. Super sharp reading of the verse. It's not my question, it's Rashi's question. And as Rashi does, he doesn't just give us the question, he gives us the answer as well. In fact, he only gives us the answer. And we have to deduce what the question was. It says Rashi, what does it mean, dust from the earth? Dust from the entire earth. Where did God get the dust from? From the earth. Wherever there's earth, that's where God got dust to construct Adam's body from. There's dust on the earth in Japan, in Australia, in Antarctica, under many, many miles of ice. In Nebraska, in Mexico, all over the world. God, God, dust, Rashi tells us, from all over the world. And in that, in that clod, if you will, of, of dust from the earth, from all over the earth, in that God infused the soul of life. Why was that necessary? Just take a hunk of dirt from anywhere, doesn't matter where, and use that to make to make Adam. Okay, we'll go a little deeper here. Says Rashi. Because Adam will die. Humanity dies. We're mortal. And when we die, we get buried. And if we were composed of dust from only one place, then we could only be buried in that place. But God was desirous 
that we can be buried anywhere. And wherever we are buried, we will be absorbed back into the earth. And therefore, he took dust from all over the earth. So part of us is native, is indigenous to every part of the earth. And therefore, wherever we are buried, Rashi tells us, we will be absorbed. Amazing idea. Incredible. It starts off with a very sharp reading of the verse, dust from the earth. And then it tells us, oh, so what's the reason? What does that mean? It means because dust from all over the earth. And why? So that way, that way when we're buried, we'll always be welcome, so to speak, by wherever we are interred. Now, what does this mean? Two amazing ideas. Burial is not a convenient and humane and environmentally friendly way to dispose of a dead body. It's much more than that. Burial is planting of a body of something that will emerge for resurrection. When we plant a body, that's not the last time we're going to see that body. It's going to emerge. The righteous will emerge for Olam Abba, for the world to come. The wicked will emerge for eternal judgment. But what we're doing when we're burying someone is we are planting that body to emerge, to surface in a future time. If you wanted to plant an S-Rog, you cannot go to upstate New York and plant a citron tree. It won't grow there. You have to find the right soil for every type of thing that grows. Pistachios grow really well, I've been told, in Iran. And almonds do really well in California. And oranges, well, they flourish in Florida. I have to maintain my New York bona fides. I can't say oranges. I have to say oranges. I can't say Florida. I have to say Florida. Florida. Oh, upstate New York, great place apparently for vineyards. Burial is planting. Human beings are being planted. And therefore, what is the appropriate place to have this grow out of the ground from? What kind of earth is conducive to allow humans, so to speak, to, 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 to grow? We have to have samples from everywhere. Powerful idea. Something it's important for us to remember. It's always important, but certainly whenever we're dealing with tragedy, suffering, and loss, it's important to remember you bury someone in the body, someone in the ground, you're planting them for the future. I actually, I actually noticed this during Yom Kippur prayers. We say, Ad God awaits the sinner to repent until the day that they die. The tshuva, to, to, to do tshuva, to repent. Lehantoso to plant him for resurrection. God wants us to repent, even up to the day that we die, so that when we die and we're buried and we're interred in the ground, we can be planted for resurrection. What an idea. What a powerful idea. What a deep, deeper, deepest idea here in Rashi. I'll give you a second answer. You know, we're going long. I I always wanted to do a little shorter. We'll do a little shorter, but he's a little snappier. But of course, we have to speak about the the terrible events that are happening in Israel right now. I hope in future weeks it'll still be shorter. We'll see. Once I get behind a microphone, you know, it's just hard for me to stop. I can't stop. It's hard. have to overcome my impulses. But listen to this second idea. We need full decomposition. You bury a body into the ground, it's important that it decompose. And the reason why is because the Talmud tells us, the book of Shabbos on page 152b, for 12 months, the soul doesn't have peace. After a body and soul separate, after death, the soul wants life again. It wants an opportunity to do more mitzvos. It needs a vehicle to do that. 
And of course, the body is the only vehicle and the body is not operational. But the soul is coming to the body and trying to stir it back alive and trying to let, let, let's get the party back in business. Let's get the gang back together. So for 12 months, the, the body is there and it still resembles a body because it hasn't been fully decomposed. And the soul doesn't have full peace because it wants to go back. And therefore, it's an imperative to try to find a place where the body can decompose and thus the soul can give up hopes, so to speak, of re-entering the body. There's a time for that. Resurrection will happen, of course. And therefore, it's important, perhaps this is the interpretation of Rashi, that the soil, so to speak, of the body match the soil of the burial so that the decomposition can happen in an efficient manner, thereby sparing the soul added additional pain of seeing the body in that state and wanting and yearning to be reunited with it. Very, very interesting. And of course, with a very powerful lesson for us. I want to end with a third segment, something that we'll speak about, please God, next week at greater length. And that is the birth of Noah, towards the end of the parsha, chapter 5, verse 29. Noah is born. Noah. Why is he called Noah? Zeyenachamenu. Noah has to do with the word comfort. Noah will give us comfort from our deeds, from our decisions, from our sadness, from the earth that God cursed. God cursed the earth. And Noah provided comfort. Well, how so? So Rashi tells us, amazing. Until Noah was born, the earth was really, really cursed. Because there was no plows. And in the aftermath of the sin of Adam and Eve, they were cursed. There'll be weeds growing out of the earth. It'll be so hard. And with the sweat of your brow, you'll make your bread. In the times of Noah, that subsided a bit. That was ameliorated a bit. There was comfort. There was Noah. There was comfort that Noah, that Noah, imposed or brought to the world. Because he made the plight of Adam, of humanity, a bit easier because he invented the plow. And if you have a plow, it's much easier to plant. What an amazing idea. I, I read a very fun book. I have a copy of this book called 50 Inventions That Shaped the Modern Economy. It's all sorts of inventions. And it starts off by saying that the number one invention is the plow. Because a plow made the impact of one person's labor on the field, it made it possible for him to cover not just his own food, but the food of others. And therefore that freed up time and energy and capacity for others to work on other on other things. So really... The plow is the one thing that enables everything else to happen because the plow is the notion of one person producing enough food, enough sustenance, enough vitality for more than one person. And who invented it? According to our sages, it is Noah. That's why he's called Noah. What is the, where's the comfort that Noah bestowed upon the nation, the nation, humanity? He invented the plow. Now this should get our attention. Noah invented the plow. Noah invented the plow. And this is essential to his character. That's why he's called Noah. Noah. Because he brought Noah. He brought comfort. What is the significance of Noah inventing the plow? That is segment number three. To ponder and to think about. And again, please God, we'll talk about it next week. So we have three segments. Dad, we're starting. I'm liking it so far. We're trying to go a little bit deeper into the parsha. And we started off maybe with the deepest idea of all, the notion 
of Genesis being a microcosm, of Bereshus being a microcosm, of it telling us the, the whole story of humanity and what the goal is, what is creation all about. It starts off with MS, with truth, with emet. It ends with truth. And that is the objective, to restore the truth that, it was, that existed before all of creation, when it was just God, to restore that to this world, to this world that's designed to obscure and obfuscate that reality. And one of the ways that we do that is with the observance of Shabbos. That was deep idea number one, segment number one. Segment number two is about the composition of, of Adam, dust from the earth. Where, where the earth? Wherever there is earth, there's a part of Adam. And why? So that way, whenever we're buried, we can be absorbed into the native land, so to speak, in which we are interred. And we learn some very powerful lessons from that, namely that death and burial is planting for future resurrection, for future emergence. And the other idea, very deep idea, is that it's important to achieve decomposition and thus allow the soul to move on, so to speak, from the body. And we ended with the third segment, Noah, the inventor. He marries into a very inventive family. If you look at Rashi's commentary to the family that uh, Noah married into, it's a very creative family. But Noah invented the plow. And that is critical to his identity. That's why he's called Noah, because he brought Noah, he brought comfort. The significance of that will be pondered. Please guide in next week's Parsha podcast. I want to give whatever encouragement I can to all of the people, our brothers, our sisters in Israel. We're with you. We're thinking about you. We love you. We wish you to, ha- to stay safe and to be successful. Of course, the soldiers, be strong. Take care of each other. Take care of yourselves. Do what you need to do and get back home safely. Please, please, please. Please, we, of course, pray to the Almighty. This is our sword. This is our bow and arrow. We're enlisting in this war. We're soldiers in this war. And if we can contribute practically as a Joshua, either in the, trench, in, the, in the trenches or supporting the effort in a material way, we can always contribute on the Moshe dimension with our Torah, with our prayer, with our love of each other, our unity, May we hear good news from each other and from the rest of our brethren. Of course, we're all on edge. But I think hopefully that our Torah study together does help this effort. We're dedicating it all in the merit of those who passed, in the merit of the speed of recovery of those who were injured, and the salvation of those who were taken hostage And of course, it should be a merit for those who are going into battle, who are right now existing on the front lines, which is really all of our brethren in the land of Israel. We hope everyone has a wonderful Shabbos. Let's try to reinforce our observance of Shabbos. Reinforce it. Reinforce it. Get get stronger, dedicated to doing it, and thereby bringing the name of God into the world. We should have a peaceful Shabbos, an uplifting Shabbos, a quiescent Shabbos. It's year eight. We have something to celebrate. It's, it's, it's sad times, but it's, it's made a little bit sweeter by the fact that we're studying Torah together. And of course, my email address is rabbiwalby at gmail.com. Send me your questions, your comments, and your feedback.